Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of PAS FML, the only podcast run by an actual, real-life, current PA student. That's me. I'm your host, PAK, and on today's episode, I'm going to take you behind the scenes into my previous clinical rotation, which was just my second clinical rotation, and that was doing internal medicine as an inpatient hospitalist. So I was in a big hospital system. Actually, it was a teaching hospital system, so that was really cool um, because I was surrounded by med students and residents and interns, and that was neat. Um, And there was a lot of teaching going on. So I wanted to split this up because I have a ton that I learned as far as the clinical medicine side of things. So I have a ton of pearls to share, but I'm going to save that for a separate episode uh, because this one is uh, a little lengthy in itself. And it's just a behind the scenes look. And I'll talk about some of the things that we saw um, like clinic medicine wise. And then, um, also just, you know, good old rambling thoughts of things that you've come to know and love, uh, from your dear old PAK here. So uh, let's get going. So one of the first things that I'll say about hospital medicine, i.e. being a hospitalist is that, Turns out that actually wasn't like a career until the mid-90s or so. And this is according to one of the attendings that I worked with. Uh, He was one of the kind of original attendings at this big hospital system that I was just working at. And it was really interesting to hear that. Like when he got done with med school, being a hospitalist wasn't a thing in Like doctors themselves used to have their outpatient clinics. And then when their patients got admitted to a hospital, they would just go to the hospital and see their patient at the hospital. Uh, And that's how things were until, I mean, at least the the mid 90s or so. Um, So it's kind of a new career and a new thing. Um, And when you tell people, oh, I'm a hospitalist. Uh, sometimes you have to explain what that is. And I always just go with the default of, well, you know, when you go to the hospital and or when you go to the emergency room and the doctors there think that you're sick enough to be to the hospital, and so they admit you to the hospital, and the very first thing you want to do is know, Doc, when am I going to get out of here? The doctor that you're talking to, that's a hospitalist. Um, so that's my uh, – kind of quick down and dirty of what is it that a hospitalist does. So, you know, that's what um, you, I have, exp- I ended up explaining to uh, my patients when I was following around on the medicine team saying that I was following the hospitalist team and they were like, well, who's that? Like, what does that doctor do? And so, well, that's what the doctor does. He kind of like is the case manager for all of the things that are going on inside um, a hospital admission. And uh, again, it's, it was kind of a new, uh, kind of a new career. And so that's cool. So there's was actually a lot more patient education going on about like what it was that a hospital medicine team even did um, than I expected. So that was kind of surprise number two. And so then going along with that, being the one who's, like I said, kind of like the case manager um, of the of somebody's hospital stay, we spent a lot of time doing consults 
uh, requesting consults, that is. So somebody's got kidney problems that are going on. Well, is it bad enough that we need some input from the nephrology team? Okay, let's consult nephrology. Uh, we specifically did a lot of consults for the GI team, lots of GI bleeds, actually, uh, we saw. Um, so we would cons consult all of these specialist teams so that they could come in, see our patients, and give their expert opinion, which, of course, was so amazing that I even had the ability to consult all of these specialists. Um, just really, I mean, I don't want to say took the pressure off me, but just, just so grateful for their expertise. But then being on the hospital team, the unique thing that is our job then is to take what the nephrologist said or the cardiologist said um, or the physical therapist said and figure out how that fits into the overall picture. And so when I say that we were kind of like the case manager for the whole um, hospital admission, um, that's what I mean in that we're taking information from all of these specialists and kind of p fitting it into the overall picture. Um, now, obviously, not everybody needed a consult from a, from a specialty team. Um, you know, some people are just, uh, you know, have a, have a case of cellulitis or, or a case of pneumonia, and we, it's pretty straightforward and uncomplicated, and so we didn't necessarily need to get, like, infectious disease involved or the pulmonologist involved all the time um, for just kind of serious cases that couldn't be handled on an outpatient basis but weren't necessarily complicated uh, we saw that as the general hospital team. Um, and so those people um, we were not necessarily case management for. We were just kind of following along of like, oh, well, yeah, you've got a pretty gnarly case of pneumonia here, but we th think you'll be better in a handful of days, but you need to stay with us in the meantime. Um, don't necessarily think you need to see the pulmonologist, though. So um, those were kind of some of the, uh, quote, easy cases that we saw. And then, of course, cases can get much more complicated from that. You know, people coming in with uh, COPD exas exacerbations, um, but then all of a sudden their kidneys crap out on them. And so now we're consulting pulmonology for their COPD management and also in the nephrology because, oh my God, now we've got huge, like their kidneys are taking a tank too. Um, so that, that was a lot of trying to check in on these people day by day to make sure that they were getting better and they weren't getting worse so much so that we needed to do a specialty consult. Uh, so that is kind of in a nutshell of what the general hospitalist team that I followed did. And I had the unique opportunity of working with a whole bunch of different attendings. In fact, I was with a different attending every week. And so I was there for six weeks. And that was cool because I got to see various uh, like pa patient uh, patient skills, like interpersonal, interpatient skill levels and how different attendings talk to different patients and how different attendings uh, explain things. And so uh, it was neat because I got to take a little bit of the things that I liked um, from each of my different attendings. But I will say that there was a certain theme um, of like how a hospitalist structured their day. And they pretty much all came in and they handled kind of like emergency pages um, that needed, you know, like pretty much like critical lab values. So, oh my God, somebody's hemoglobin is down to five or, um, 
you know, their CO2 is through the roof. So kind of these like critical pages that came in that obviously were time sensitive, but those were actually few and far between. By and large, the doctors came in and they took a look and see to see what happened to their patients overnight. Um, and that was by means of uh, seeing what like the nursing notes um, in their inbox had to say. Uh, and a lot of times, thankfully, it was, you know, no new events overnight. So that's like the main thing that you want to know about what happened to your patients. Were there any acute events going on overnight? Um, and that was especially true if somebody was admitted to telemetry. So telemetry is this kind of special unit or special floor uh, or floors that people are constantly hooked up to like cardiac monitoring. We are constantly um, like looking at their rhythm strips and there is a dedicated person even on these telemetry units who their whole job is to sit in front of these various monitors and just watch for scary things to go on. Um, So the telemetry unit is a pretty neat um, part of the hospital because it is like cardiology on steroids, um, to use terrible analogies. But if somebody's got some heart issues going on and we want them to be monitored literally 24 hours a day by like human eyeballs, they get sent to the tele floor. Uh, so, um, obviously if somebody's on telemetry, like I said, the first thing you do when you get in is, is there, was there any overnight acute events? Um, and even then when you get to start rounding on your patients, the very, the very first thing I did when I got to a patient who was on the telly floor was go talk to the telly monitor person and say, hey, give me the scoop. Like, what, what went on here overnight? And I guess that happens enough that the telemetry person is, like, totally expecting you as the rounding provider to come, come to them and say, hey, what happened to my patient overnight? And they give you the quick, like, 15-second elevator pitch of, like, here's what happened. And Thankfully, a lot of the time it was like no new events or, you know, a, a run of some tachycardia here, but they're okay now, you know, uh, like, right, you know, we, we want our patients to be getting better. So hopefully the news is, hey, they're getting better kind of thing. Um, and the vast majority of the patients, that was the case indeed. Um, I think I only had one patient that was just kind of in like a persistent tachycardia, tachycardia no, was it, no, persistent SVT. Um, and we ended up having to put them on a diltiazem drip. Um, uh, because they just weren't being kicked out of it. Um, so, uh, like I said, you get to work in the morning. And the very first thing we did was anybody have any acute night, uh, acute events overnight, um, by means of what's in my inbox, what kind of pages do I have here? Um, were any labs returned from yesterday that came back late that I was waiting on when I left yesterday and they weren't back yet. So are those back now? Um, usually you draw labs in the morning. Um, so you input labs at whatever time you get in for us, it was about 7am, um, so kind of like take a quick scroll through and say, okay, yeah, you know, what, what was going on with, the, with this person yesterday? Um, they're in for GI bleed. Do I need to check um, a H&H, meaning a hemoglobin and a hematocrit? Um, and uh, also just a little, little mini pearl here. I know I said I wasn't going to do it, but little mini pearl. Apparently, nobody cares about hematocrit anymore. Nobody. Everybody looks at the hemoglobin because... The, hemoglo- the hemoglobin and the hematocrit is essentially they 
they're like the crit is derived from the hemoglobin. It's roughly about three times it. Um, and so you just, you really don't need it. If, if you have somebody's hemoglobin, okay, we'll multiply that number by three and then you can get their hematocrit. So none of the attendings that I uh, worked with, they really didn't care that I reported their hematocrit and they are all just like, well, you know, what was their hemoglobin? So anyway, little pro tip there. People are just really worried about everybody's uh, hemoglobin right now. So, um, so back to drawing labs. Uh, you pretty much draw morning labs in the morning, uh, obviously, to be redundant there, but pretty much draw labs in the morning, um, again, based on what was going on with the patient yesterday and what you want to follow up on today. And again, and then maybe what happened overnight. Did the patient have gnarly chest pain overnight? Well, do you need to run some serial troponins on them? Uh, obviously, there was a doctor who took care or a provider who took care of them overnight. So I would hope that uh, if a patient was having new onset chest pain, they did all the things last night, but like maybe they drew a troponin last night and it's six hours later and we want to see if that troponin is trending. So um, kind of trending labs is a big overarching theme. Is there, um, you know, hopefully nothing new is coming up, right? So we just need to go, okay, well, they were admitted for rhabdo um, myelosis. So um, do we need to trend their um, CK? Do you want to see if their CK is coming down? Did they come in with a gnarly um, a gnarly infection, either like a cellulitis or pneumonia. We saw that all the time. Do you want to trend their white count to make sure that the antibiotic that you started them on yesterday is actually doing something? So um, you kind of start that uh, in the morning and try to get that going with morning lab draws because, you know, the lab, unless you make it stat, which, by the way, also if you make a lab stat, apparently it costs like four times as much. Um, so... If, I mean, obviously, if you need the lab, right, we're talking like life and death inside the hospital here. So like if you need the lab and you need it now, definitely order it stat. Um, but just kind of know that it's more expensive for the patient. Um, so, you know, everybody's trying to keep costs down here. So if you don't, you know, if it's okay for their, their white count or their hemoglobin to be returned within the next like six hours, then just order it normal, routine. Um, so uh, so ordering labs um again, more, most of them were like trending. We're, what are we following here? What was their admitting problem? What are we following to make sure that there's being resolution of this problem? Um, so that's uh, included in morning labs. And then again, if anything popped up overnight, um, anything else you're worried about, um, you know, wanna, you want to you wanna pull that as well. So that's kind of the first round of things that went on when uh, got got to work in the morning, what labs do I want to pull kind of thing. Um, and then you kind of cut the, all the providers that I followed kind of triaged patients from there, meaning, uh, we need to start rounding on patients, right? This is the dreaded, like we're going to round on the patients and, and all of the medical shows, uh, always show, you know, a whole bunch of, um, uh, like med students and, you know, and residents and, and, uh, and PA students and whatever in their various, uh, various sections of, of their levels of education and kind of, you know, following along like the dutiful, dutiful little ducklings following along to the attending, like we're going to round, everybody's going to round. Uh, well, me personally, I wasn't part of the duckling cohort. Um, not that, I mean, that was certainly going on, um, 
they were all the med students were over there and then like and then the residents um and for for anybody who doesn't have a background knowledge of like what what goes on in the medical like in, in the med in the med student world um you know if you've got your uh med students but then after you graduate med school you actually get called a doctor like you're a doctor after you graduate med school. Um, but for most people, they end up doing a residency after that. Um, and that's just the vast majority of people will do that. Um, but turns out that even if you just, just quote unquote, just go through med school and you don't want to do a residency, like I said, you're already a doctor. Um, but that's where the term general practitioner comes from. So, um, it's my understanding that a general practitioner is somebody who's not gone through, um, a residency program and gotten boarded. Um, but again, the vast majority of, of, um, people who go through med school, become a doctor, will just go ahead, um, and go on with, um, like a three-year residency so that they can sit for the boards and get board certified in something. Um, so there's three years of a, um, uh, of a residency and at least in the hospital that I was at, and I'm pretty sure that this is pretty, uh, nationwide, like your first year of your resident three-year residency program, right? So you've just completed med school, you're quote unquote, a doctor, um, but now you are working in your residency and your first year you're called an intern, um, or R1, but you're an intern, like you're an intern year. And, you know, as most things in life, shit rolls downhill. So at the very bottom of the duckling pool are your med students. And then just one rung above them are your interns. And that's your whole first year, you're considered an intern. And then your second year, then you actually get to call yourself uh, like an R2, like a, a resident, a resident two, like R2. And then after that, you on your third year, then you're considered an R3. So you're like a, um, you're a R3 resident. Um, and I don't think you get to be called a chief resident until you actually like have to apply for like chief status. So that's like essentially like a super resident. You're, you go through your three years of residency and then you can apply to become like chief resident. And then you're ahead of all the third years even. Um, and there's various reasons why doctors themselves would want to do that. Um, but anyway, I just kind of wanted to break down like this is kind of the hierarchy of what goes on in – what what I believed to be going on um, inside kind of a general um, re like a hospital that ha takes on residents there. So like, again, so like, that's that whole like, we're gonna go round on the patients. Well, what does that mean? Usually that's, that's who's rounding on the patients, you've got various med students, you've got some interns, you've got some residents either on second years or third years. And then of course, you've got the attending physician. So like, that's the hierarchy of what these other people at the hospital are going through. And I was thankful enough, again, that I didn't get lumped in with that, because I'm not I just I didn't want to go to med school. For so many reasons, I did not want to go to med school. And and seeing those those poor folks and you know god love them for their dedication but i'm just so glad that i wasn't thrust into that hierarchical system because like i said at least in the the um big hospital system that i was in man did shit roll down roll downhill um and you know they're just 
kind of, you know, one, one grunt work doing one grunt work after another kind of a thing. Um, so anyway, thankfully I did, I was, didn't have to do any of that. I, it was just me and attending and I was so thankful that it was just the two of us. Um, cause I got all the attention, um, and very little of the shit. Um, so that was, that was really nice. Um, so for me, uh, my pers- my personal responsibilities as the PA student though, was I, had anywhere from one to four patients. And I know that sounds so like a, such a small amount of patients. I mean, coming out of my uh, emergency rotation where I kind of also did like urgent care where I would see like up to 27 patients a day, um, dropping from 27 to four patients seemed like like a huge demotion. But these the patients are sick enough to be to needed to need to be admitted to the hospital and so there's a lot going on and i i mean i would spend sometimes up to like 3 hours just researching the interplay of of congestive heart failure and also somebody with kidney management i mean and those two things going on like was like child's play for the attending physician like everybody in the hospital had like at least three different things going on, and here I was only researching two of the th- two of the three things for hours on end. So, I know it sounds like a, an insignificant amount of patients to have even four. That was my max. Four patients was my max per day, um, and they had to pretty much be pretty uncomplicated patients for me to have four. I'd say more often I was only following two probably three patients um, every day um, that they were in the hospital. Um, And that was more than enough, again, because I was doing so much research on how do I keep this patient alive? And like, the fact that I'm throwing IV fluid at them to maybe help with their pancreatitis, is that doing anything to their congestive heart failure? Uh, Pro tip, yeah, probably. Um, And so just making sure that treating them for one thing didn't cause a clusterfuck of 13 other things for them downstream, like, again, hours making sure that I wasn't doing that. Um, And so, yeah, I I didn't have a lot of patience. And that was okay because I learned so much more about the interplay of the medicine together. And so that was super valuable. So I would follow my, again, one, you know, one to three to four patients, follow up, you know, what happened to them overnight? Is there anything going on on um, telemetry that I needed? Um, did any of the specialists that I consulted yesterday, did their notes get dumped in at 630 last night after I checked on the patient again? Um, and so, you know, what does the cardiologist have to say? Um, about their congestive heart failure. What did the pulmonologist say? What did the GI specialist say? So reading up on all the notes kind of that the specialists themselves put into the patient record, like I said, after I had already kind of gotten things in motion. So kind of like in the emergency room, it was a lot of like teeing up the dominoes and then pushing them over and then waiting for other people to kind of like take their turn. And then while I was doing that, I, you know, went on to another patient and teed up some more dominoes and pushed them over. So, you know, I, I mean, I totally get why patients are just so frustrated because from their end, it looks like nothing's happening from their end. It looks like we come in and, you know, say our 15, 20 minute spiel, and then we leave the room 
and and then it looks like nothing is happening um, because they don't see anything. And so I found myself kind of in patient's room here going, you know, now I know we just spent, you know, 20 minutes together here and I know it looks like like a lot, not a lot is necessarily going on, but I promise you I am following along behind the scenes here. You know, there you see everybody on a computer if you, you know, you pop your head outside this door and you'll see everybody who works here on a computer. And that is because we are following up on somebody. We're watching your labs come in. We're watching the specialists come in. We are watching, I promise. Um, so even though you don't see me, just know that I am following along with your care behind the scenes. I'm looking at the nurse's notes. I'm looking at the physical therapy note. I promise. I'm, I'm, I'm following along with you. Um, and you know, I don't know, maybe I just said it because it made me feel better, but, um, I just, I can see why patients would get frustrated and concerned that not a lot was going on because they don't spend a lot of face time with us. Um, but, uh, but you really do spend a lot of time through all throughout your day checking in on these labs. And I didn't have a pager. Obviously, my attending physicians had pagers, but it's not like the nurse was paging me when a blood pressure was crazy or when a patient, you know, needed some more pain meds. Um, and so just the amount the amount of time that you spend just randomly checking in on your patients when you're on the other side of the hospital because you're wondering if the lab came back yet or, like I said, you know, a nurse paged you with a question or something like we spend so much time thinking about these patients, um, but it's something that the patient themselves never see because it's going on in the technology world that they are not privy to. So anyway, uh, another little pro tip there. Um, just I've, I found it reassuring, for my, whether or not it was for me or for my patients, but I found it reassuring to tell them that I promise you I'm, I'm looking to, to see what's going on behind the scenes here. Um, so uh, that's just kind of an ongoing thing. Again, like that, you know, set your dominoes up, take your move, um, and then wait and see what the other specialist said. Wait and see what the nurse said. You know, I found myself even looking at nursing notes to find out, is my pancreatitis patient who just had an ERCP last night, are they eating? Did they tolerate the food? That's a big thing. Like, okay, GI cleared them for clear liquids. Uh are they eating clear liquids? Did that stay down? So find, again, find myself looking through nurses' notes um, to see: Did the um, is the patient eating now? Is their pain controlled? And that those were two big, big, big things. Um, kind of like hurdles that need to be cleared before a patient, before you even consider discharging a patient. Are they keeping food and liquids in, even if it's like soft food, even if it's like oatmeal and yogurt, like that was enough for my attendings to be like, yeah, yeah you probably can uh, head on home then. Um, so is the patient keeping food and liquid down and is their pain controlled? Um, and, you know, a lot of these p patients were on IV pain meds at first. Um, and so after... So a big question kind of for is their pain controlled was, well, are they, are they able to be moved from IV pain meds to PO pain meds? Like that was kind of like a mini hurdle um, before we even asked, is their, pain, is their pain controlled? Can we send them home basically on PO medication? Again, and that goes hand in hand with, well, can they even tolerate PO? So those were two really big hurdles for is my patient getting well enough that I might be able to send them home? Um, so 
uh, spend, like I said, spend a lot of time reading through the nursing notes and asking patients themselves, are you eating? Are you eating food down? How's your pain level today? It was an eight yesterday. What's it like today? Um, and so it's not that we're trying to, again, to like completely rid patients of pain, but can we get it to a manageable level that I can send you home with some pain meds? And unfortunately, again, I was, I was just surprised to see a lot more narcotics used than I, um, than I expected. Um, but I felt like a lot of my attendings were, were doing their due diligence in maybe only giving pain like narcotics for like the next three to four days kind of thing. So literally only sending them home with like seven pills total. Uh, apparently like in their heyday, we were writing them for like 30 day, 30 day, um, like morphines, um, and with like two refills. So like, apparently it was like super egregious. So, um, I guess we've come a long way in that patients were getting seven pills, seven Vicodins only. And of course, zero refills. Um, and then you, you always tell your, your patients, yeah. And follow up with your primary care provider in like a week, um, kind of thing. So, you know, so those going back, that was, those were like some big hurdles. Those were the things that I was constantly looking in the nurse's notes for and constantly asking the patient for, you know, walking in. I mean, obviously you want to check in on like, what was the thing that sent them there? You know, are you still having bright red blood per rectum? Are you still vomiting? Are you still having weird, you know, or not weird, but are you still having chest pain? Is your breathing getting any better? So, you know, you always want to obviously follow up on the thing that put them in the hospital in the first place. But very close questions after that was, are you able to eat and drink? Is your pain controlled, not gone, but controlled? And is it controlled on PO meds? And then everybody always wants to know, are you peeing and pooping okay? Uh, how's your bowel and bladder? When was the last time you had a bowel movement? And was it normal for you? Right? Because one of the things that I've discovering is that everybody has really crazy bowel habits. Um, and so you always want to ask, is it normal for you? Um, and uh, same thing with the urination, you know, um, if you drank more water, I would expect you to urinate more. Um, so I would always kind of toss that out saying like, are you peeing any more frequently? Are you, any, uh, you know, any burning? Um, that was a little less uh, concerning than like, when was the last time you pooped? Um, right? Because somebody who doesn't poop in three to four days, we start getting worried about them, of course, you know, constipation is rampant. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we don't want any, uh, small bowel obstructions going on here. We don't want to be sending any small bowel obstructions home. Um, so that was a big one. And, um, kind of going back to the narcotics use, um, even like heavy duty NSAIDs like naproxen, um, those are notorious for stopping people up. And so some providers that I followed with just basically said, okay, here's your narcotic, um, and your Miralax or your Metamucil, um, so that you don't get stopped up. It was just kind of like one, it like hand in hand was totally a given. Um, so, uh, just kind of a patient education thing um, with that. If you're sending patients home on heavy duty uh, pain meds or nar narcotics, um, you know, they, they might want to look into a Metamucil or a stool softener just to make sure that things keep flowing. So, um, so those were some of the things that I always kind of checked in on my patients with. Um, so I guess I'll talk about some of the 
main things that I saw, and again, you know, this is stuff that a PA student saw. I mean, yes, people were there for heart attacks and whatnot, and I um, rounded on them with my attendings, but I wasn't like their main provider because that's inappropriate for me at like on my god was that that was only my second clinical rotation so my second clinical rotation you know we're not trying to like you know load they're not trying to load up the PA student with um people who are having like left and right heart failure causing kidney failure but like that's a thing man like people can get really sick and people can turn south and I had a handful of patients who we ended up sending to the ICU. And then we don't follow them anymore. It's not like I was their provider anymore. I mean, like, there are specialists in the ICU, um, intensivists, who that's their whole job. So once we transferred a patient to ICU, um, I stopped following them Um but uh, again, I didn't see many of those patients anyway. So some of the main things that I saw as an early into my clinical rotation PA student was a ton of GI bleeds. Um, and I'm going to save some of the clinical pearls here for another episode, um, but just to kind of lay out a smattering here. So a ton of GI bleeds, um, lots of um, CHF, um, so congestive heart failure exacerbations, and um just kind of as a forward to some of the pearls that I'll be talking about later, like there is a difference between right-sided heart failure and left-sided heart failure. Um, and I wish I would have paid more attention to that because it's alive and well in the hospital and all of my attendings wanted to know left, right, you know, are they wet and warm or dry and cold? And man, I wish I would have paid more attention to that. So um, we'll get into that next time. Um, but saw a lot of CHF, um, saw a lot of pneumonia, uh, unfortunately, a lot of these were elderly folks um, with or without underlying uh, lung issues, but um, a lot of pneumonia, and then also a ton of pancreatitis. I even saw a really uh, interesting case where uh, this gal had familial pancreatitis. She, she was maybe in her early 40s, and she had already had 41 ERCPs already. So the ERCP, the E stands for endoscopic, which tells you that it's a procedure. Um, so she had had an endoscopic procedure, meaning they put a scope um, down her esophagus and like took a right turn um, over to the head of the pancreas and did their magic. Um, they had done that for her 41 times already. It was crazy, this poor gal. So um, uh uh, acute pancreatitis is alive and well, um, just in general, but it was really interesting um, to see a hereditary case of it. So it was just um, really unfortunate. But she did really well. Uh, she had, I think, her youth on her side. Yes, 40 is young. Um, I'm not there just yet. Um, but even once I get there, I'm still going to think that 40 is young. So 40 is young. She had her youth on, on her side. And after her, her ERC, her 42nd ERCP, she was able to um, tolerate clear liquids, um, which we waited for GI to clear her about, right? Going back to that, con you know, who did we consult? We consulted GI and GI did the procedure, said she's good for clears, and then it kind of advanced her after that. And then I was just really surprised um, with which how quickly a lot of the consult teams signed off. Um, like I said, you know, GI would do like an ERCP one day, 
cleared the patient for clear liquids. And then like the next day they were gone. They were like, oh, as long as she's tolerating PO and not having a return of symptoms, we're done. Um, so, you know, I guess they just, uh, you know, they, they turned it over to our very capable, capable hands. I'll, I'll say it that way. I'll put a positive spin on it. They turned it over to our very capable hands. And of course, um, we actually didn't need to consult, um, GI, uh, or most of the people that we consulted, um, we didn't need to consult them really once after they uh, signed off. So I guess they know what they're doing. But um, the clear liquid is basically meaning just like um, like uh, chicken broth, beef broth. Um, ironically, some some tight colors of Jello are allowed. I think like red and green are maybe allowed. Or maybe green and blue are allowed, but red isn't. Um, your friendly dietitian would tell you. And I know um, my dear friend, the dietitian, is probably f- f- um, whacking her hand against her head because she and I have talked about this before, and I've had this exact same question because it's weird. Um, that some different, like f- like literal food dye colors, are not allowed on a quote clear liquid diet, um, uh, and. Your friendly again. Your friendly registered dietitian can tell you why. Um, but like apple juice is allowed, Sprite is allowed, but you're like not usually allowed any coffee um, or any like colas or anything like that. So uh, anyway, that's your clear liquid diet, um, and then you and then you can progress from there um, to like um, like a soft or like puree diet and soft diet. So um, but anyway, that's more of a GI stuff. Um, so anyway, so. Um, I actually I saw a lot of pancreatitis. Um, I actually saw a ton of syncope. So um, get good in w- doing your syncope differential. So I'm going to talk about that um, in uh, the one of the clinical pearl episodes coming up. But saw a ton of syncope and really wished I had paid more attention to what is a syncope workup, including seizures. Saw a handful of um, weird, or not weird, but just kind of like new seizures. Um, which was odd, you know, usually like in PA school, it was somebody with like, you know, a known, known seizure problem. And oh, turns out they were low on their valproic acid level. Um, Or they, you know, it was an alcoholic going through um, alcoholic withdrawals and had a seizure. But like, I was just really surprised at the amount of like new onset seizures that came through the door. So that was interesting. Um, And then I also had a patient uh, who had an MS flare, Um, He was um, really, really interesting um, in that uh, it was brought on by he got a cold and then his MS flared up on him and his leg gave out and he fell when he was walking down when he was getting off the bus. Um, And it was crazy. And we actually tested him. We actually did PCR and we actually tested him to find out. Um, like which one of the viruses he had, and he had, ended up having like one of the super most common ones, which was rhinovirus, that actually came back positive. So, um, but uh, you know, pro tip: just getting a common cold can give a flare up for these MS folks. Uh, we ended up doing an MRI spi- MRI um, of his brain and his spine just to see if there were new lesions as well as this like cold thing going on. And unfortunately, he did have some new lesions that showed up in his spine even. Um, so that was, um, uh, good on us because apparently, um, he had just moved from out of state, um, and he had been in the hospital six months earlier and they, for whatever reason, didn't do an MRI of his spine, but, um, 
man, MS can get you both in the brain and the spine, right? It's a CNS uh, problem. So um, I don't know why his previous hospital didn't check his spine, but so we did and we found new ones um, from the MRI that we had had before, years before then. So who knows when they were there. But um, anyway, um, so saw, saw some MS, uh, one MS flare, um, but otherwise, I think I've already mentioned them, the tons and tons and tons of GI bleeds. So know your differential um, for upper GI bleed versus lower GI bleed. Um, your ACS, meaning acute coronary syndrome, which is just a general blanket statement for um, uh, like uh, angina and versus um, like are you having a heart attack kind of thing. Um, so I, I didn't actually, I personally didn't follow too many of that. Again, my attending did, but I personally, um, didn't see, um, too much of that because mainly also they were probably being followed by cards, um, and cards was probably primary on them. Um, so like the general hospital medicine team, we, we maybe just weren't primary on those kind of cases. Um, but, uh, certainly knowing like your ACS rule out, um, meaning the patient is having some sort of, uh, heart issue, like like heart pain, angina, right? They're having um, angina and like their troponin is bumped. So like, um, well, I guess that wouldn't be an ACS rule out, but, um, you know, a patient uh, needs to be admitted to the hospital to rule out um, really scary cardiac things. So that's um, a pretty uh, classical um, hospital admission for ACS rule out. So uh, anyway, uh, I think I've already said kind of all the things um, that I saw um, I guess I'll end with um, one of the sadder things that w I saw was I actually had two patients in my six weeks that had undiagnosed some sort of like GI cancer going on. Um, and that was sad because um, it, it was undiagnosed and they really weren't having any symptoms except when they all of a sudden got like nauseous and vomiting and they couldn't hold anything down. And, you know, they were just thinking maybe it's just like a really bad flu kind of a thing. And then, you know, turns out, um, it was, like I said, um, cancer somewhere in the GI system. Um, but, uh, I don't, I, I mean, I, I guess I can't say whether or not if that's super common or not, uh, I should have asked my attendings, but, um, it was it was hard. That was that was some of the harder things to deal with was like the like surprise cancer diagnoses. Um, and uh, one of one of my patients actually ended up, um, man, his kidneys tanked. Um, we we were following his creatinine um, daily, and it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. Um, we ended up consulting nephrology. Um, after we figured out that there was some cancer going on, we, uh, we consulted, uh, he monk, um, who, who weighed in and we were just, um, so appreciative for all of the various, like I said, you know, that was a real complicated case, right? I mean, this is out of, this is out of general medicine wheelhouse. You know, we, we needed these experts to weigh in. Um, and, you know, and again, and that's kind of where we were case manager for this patient. And it was hard because all the thing all of the things that the experts were telling us was that you know his kidney function was really bad and so bad did he want did he need um hemodialysis because or did he want did he want hemodialysis because 
that was pretty much his only option at that point. And then, um, you know, the Hemonk folks and uh, we did a whole bunch of like CTs and MRIs to try to find out where is this cancer. And we ended up finding cancer in the lungs and the liver. And, you know, did we want to look at the pancreas to see if it was there? And, um, you know, it was kind of like, well, you could, but like, is it going to change management? Um, and so ultimately we ended up consulting, um, palliative care, um, who came in and, and man, those people are the unsung heroes of the hospital. They are the most compassionate, empathetic, just the nicest people, uh, you'll, you'll ever meet. Um, and they are there to lend support to your patients and to your patients' families who are, of course, going through just seriously hard, hard, hard things. I mean, you know, you, you want to talk about a healthy dose of perspective about, you know, the problems that you think are going on in your life. And, and I, you know, I'm not trying to downplay, um, you know, trying to make ends meet, you know, financially, um, you know, or just, you know, interpersonal relationships are hard. And, you know, you've got, you know, your parents or your, your kids and, you know, th- I mean, things are hard. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you just, man, just a, r- a real healthy dose of perspective, you know, walking into a patient room where, you know, their 67 year old dad just got a, you know, cancer diagnosis and palliative cares and they're talking about you know what comfort care is and you know I'm, I'm looking right into the eyes of a, a daughter who's not much older than I am who's got like a brand new six-week-old baby um, you know I mean that's hard so um, you know people get sick and I don't I don't know I mean, obviously I knew, I knew people were going to get sick. Like that's what medicine is about. But I was just really struck with, um, man, people can get really sick really fast. Um, and it is, it's hard and it, it really took a toll on me and, um, kind of going on my latest episode of the stress and anxiety of, of everything. It's just, you know, I, I really had to come home and, and, and try to do some self-care care, um, to just to just try to kind of process some of the really heavy stuff that I saw um, through the day um, there. You know, not everybody was a healthy 41-year-old girl who just, you know, needed another ERCP and she was, you know, on her way home to her two kids. Um, sometimes we couldn't fix things. And, you know, in a otherwise, you know, healthy 90-year-old who's lived their life and the bravery on their face when they tell you, I'm ready to stop fighting. I mean, I I can't imagine, I can't imagine getting to that point, you know, but here I am in my 30s and, you know, I there's so much that I feel that, that I've not accomplished. And so I can't even fathom, you know, looking somebody else in, in the eyes and saying, yeah, I'm I've, I've done what I've needed and I'm ready for the next chapter of whatever that is. Um, you know, so it's, like I said, just the bravery, um, that goes on in, in, inside the mind of a 90 year old who says, I'm done fighting this pneumonia. I'm done fighting this heart failure, this kidney failure. I'm just, I'm tired and I'm done and I'm ready. And just the courage, um, that that must take, uh, is just outstanding. And so these were the things that I would come home with, not every day, but 
um, more often than I um, thought, and they hit me harder than I thought, and so a lot more self care, like I said, uh, and I I wasn't good at it. <laughs> I didn't I didn't learn much in my didactic year, turns out, because I really um, wasn't. Uh, I just, I really didn't handle it. And I think I probably should have talked more about it. I should have um, talked with my significant other about it more. I, and, and maybe probably should have reached out to my classmates um, even more about some of the things that I was having a hard time with. And, and to this day, this right now in this minute, I've actually not talked to my classmates who about some of the hard things that have gone on with them. And that's certainly... Uh, on the on the docket, I'd really like to talk to my classmates about some things that kind of surprise them about um, some heavy heavy things, right? Like I said, you know, I'm I'm here to normalize that there is there's stress and anxiety that will touch you, um, you know, just because you're a good person and you let your patients' lives um, in to you, and that's a good thing because it makes you a good provider, but. It also, you kind of take some of their burden home with you, and you, you got to be able to deal with it. Um, and so um, for me personally, that um, I, sh- I should have talked more about what I was feeling, um, you know, and, and, and my attendings were great, actually. Um, and that, act- that probably lends itself to uh, the, their level of professionalism and expertise and just knowing that this is hard stuff because I had a, a, a few of them on more than one occasion ask how I was doing at the end of a shift. And I, I don't think they were saying it just to be nice. Again, I, I think they were doing it because they know that it's hard. Um, and that maybe, you know, the newbies at it aren't very good at, at dealing with it just yet. Um, and we, we need to talk about it. So I, I wish I would have talked about it a little bit more with some of my attendings, but, um, certainly my, my classmates and, and again, my, um, significant other is also in healthcare. And so he certainly would know, um, kind of where I'm coming from. And so I, I probably should have taken that, um, uh, taken advantage of that. But, you know, um, I, uh, got, um, in recent months, I had been a little bit more lax with taking my, um, uh, Lexapro. And so I, uh, I just was a little more consistent with taking that a little bit more. And also, um, kind of having these mindful moments about being, like I said, a real healthy dose of perspective about the things that were important to me. You know, I found myself um, sending more text messages to my parents who are uh, thankfully like alive and and well. I mean, they're, they're doing great. They're retired. They're, they're traveling all over the, the country and they're, you know, going to their grandkids, um, like little league games and they just went trick or treating with them. I mean, so just, um, so thankful for not only my health, but for the health of the people who are near and dear to me. And I'm just so thankful for that. Cause like I said, like, man, nothing like a healthy dose of perspective to look at, to look across, you know, the worried eyes of somebody who's just a handful of years older than you, you know, and like, I, you know, I don't know all about medicine, but I know enough, I knew enough to know that the notes that were coming in from the oncologist and the notes that were coming in from the nephrologist were not good. Um, And sure enough, you know, like I said, thankfully, we got palliative care involved in, in time. And, you know, I, I hope that he, the patient had, you know, a peaceful 48 hours. Um, he was in a lot, a lot of pain, 
um, at the end, not necessarily because of the cancer, but he um, had had some back pain, back pain problems, um, kind of all of his adult life and uh, laying being laid up in a hospital bed was not helpful for him at all. Um, So he was having a lot of back pain. And, um, you know, we really just, you know, I mean, that's a time, man, you know, here's all your narcotics, you know, all the narcotics for you, my friend, because, um, you know, you just, you, you want, you want to help. And like I said, I, I read all the notes and I talked to my attendings and there wasn't much to offer him other than I can help with your pain, your family's here, you know, what else is important to you? Um, and unfortunately the patient himself became a little delirious, um, because his kidney function was so bad and, um, his wife and daughters ended up having to speak, um, about what they thought that he would want for himself. Um, um, and so, you know, I mean, I guess it's a win that he passed, um, seemingly comfortable, you know, he wasn't crying out in pain and his family was there. Um, so, but you know, again, just some really, some really heavy duty stuff, um, that can come your way in the hospital because, you know, again, surprise, I don't know, it shouldn't be a surprise. It's a hospital. Um, so, um, man, I didn't, I don't mean to end, um, on such, um, uh, a serious note there, but, uh, I guess that's kind of my takeaway. You know, I, like I said, I saw a lot of GI bleeds, saw a lot of people who got fixed, um, you know, a lot of people, um, who we fix their GI bleed, we fix their pneumonia, we fix their cellulitis. Um, we fixed, you know, they got a, they had a heart attack. And so the cardiologist put a stent in, or they had some crazy SVT. And so we, um, got them an, an ablation with the cardio electrophysiologist and, the, and then they went home. So, um, you know, I guess I'll end on that, that, you know, a ton of people, we're just in the hospital for a few days. Um, and then they went home and, you know, we told them, of course, you know, follow up with your PCP or here's the specialists that, you know, you need to go follow up with now, go follow up with your endocrinologist about your diabetes management. Um, actually a lot of, unfortunately, uh, some diabetes complications, um, mainly wounds becoming infected. And because they're diabetic, we kind of have a low threshold for treating them on an outpatient basis. So a lot of a lot of diabetics in with various infections. Um, but, you know, a lot of people, we, fu- we figure out what's going on, we fix it, and then we send them home. And you, you try to impress upon them while they're with you for the 22 minutes that you're in the room, if that, that, you know, that they can take care of some of this stuff and they should be on the lookout for you know, rapid heartbeats, or they should, you know, really lay off the donuts and the orange juice. So you do your best. But um, at the end of the day, it's, um, it's, kind, you know, the good fight needs to be fought by the primary care doctors, so, uh, or providers, rather. So, you know, m- other, other unsung heroes of the uh, medicine world, the primary care p- providers who see those patients day in, day out, and can, and can really make um, a change one way or the other. You know, again, in the hospital, we're just there for a snippet of time. And um, I, uh, I found myself, you know, being sad. I mean, happy, of course, that the patients were good enough that could that could be discharged. But, um, you know, finding that I wanted a little bit more patient continuity was something that surprised me. I have always worked in acute care, um, so I just assumed that I would like acute care. Um, but uh, I see the value in 
forming a relationship with a patient and getting them to trust you and, you know, working together. And it seems like such a cliche, but um, really working together on like trying to bring that A1C down and trying to control their COPD and their CHF kind of thing. And, you know, and educating them about how they can manage these things at home, because medicine is so cool and that there really are a lot of things that we can manage. Um, but it's, it, you, you got to put the time in um, to build your rapport with your patients. Um, so that they trust you and, you know, and, and believe that, that they can affect change in this thing that they've been diagnosed with. So um, anyway, that's uh, kind of my bit on acute care in the hospital world, like I said, as a hospitalist. So uh, next time, we'll get into some more of the clinical pearls. So that's what I've got for you today.